Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, I cannot tell you how impressed I was by Michael Imperioli. Actually, I can tell you, I'm I'm telling you right now. It's a ridiculous expression. Anyway, I've been watching Michael Imperioli for decades in Goodfellas, on The Sopranos, and most recently on White Lotus. I vaguely knew that he was interested in Buddhism, but it wasn't until I sat down with the guy face to face that I realized what a deep, deep practitioner he really is. He's actually grown into something of a meditation teacher, in fact. In this conversation, we talked about the classic celebrity life crisis that brought him to Buddhism, the importance of consistent practice as a way to get familiar with your mind so that your thoughts and emotions and urges don't own you, the specific Tibetan Buddhist tradition in which Michael Imperioli practices, what his daily practice looks like, whether meditation helps him be more creative, how acting and meditation are actually pretty similar, whether getting older affects or does not, Uh, your ability to grok impermanence, why he started teaching meditation online, how to meditate off the cushion in daily life, and the two most common things Michael hears from people who are just starting to meditate. I should say this is the first in a series of big name interviews we're gonna be doing this month. It's a new series we're calling Boldface. Every Monday in May, we're talking to a celebrity who has the guts to spill their guts. Stay tuned for Mike D and Neil deGrasse Tyson coming up. And then on Wednesdays this month, we're going to do some deep dharma. We've got a bunch of Buddhist teachers on the show to break down a classic Buddhist list, the Eightfold Path. We're kicking it all off in two days with the teacher, Dara Williams. I think you're going to like it. We're going to weave throughout the month of May, which, by the way, is Mental Health Awareness Month. Mondays, we've got celebrities. Wednesdays, deep dharma. Let us know what you think. Just a little bit more to say about Michael Imperioli before we dive in here. As some of you may know, he played Christopher Moltisanti on The Sopranos, for which he won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series. In the early part of his career, Imperioli starred as Spider in Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, iconic, albeit brief, role. Uh, He also had supporting roles in films including Jungle Fever, Bad Boys, The Basketball Diaries, Shark Tale, and The Lovely Bones. Imperioli also co-wrote the screenplay for Summer of Sam with Spike Lee and wrote five episodes of The Sopranos. He also wrote and directed the feature film, The Hungry Ghosts. Most recently, he starred in the second season of the outstanding HBO drama series, The White Lotus, which, by the way, I hear is going to be set in Asia in season three and involves some themes of Eastern spirituality. So Mike White, writer, creator, director of The White Lotus, if you're listening to this, love to have you on the show. Anyway, today it's Michael Imperioli. It's a great conversation. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Michael Imperioli, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure. I've been a fan since your spider days and all the way up through White Lotus, so I've followed your career I kind of vaguely knew you were into Buddhism, but it wasn't until my producer, Gabrielle, put together this research packet on you that I saw. I was kind of blown away by You've really dedicated a lot of time and energy to this. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of thing that over time has become a bigger and bigger part of our lives. My wife, Victoria, and I, we went to our first teaching in 2007 here in the city. Oddly enough, it was only a few blocks from where we were living, and we had no idea. There was that East-West Books, which was... a that time on Fifth Avenue, it's like a, you know, new age bookstore or whatever. And we saw a poster and we went. And when we walked in, we realized in the 80s, it was a very decadent nightclub, like sex, drugs, and rock and roll joint that both of us had been to before we met, you know, late crazy night place. And now it was a Tibetan Buddhist center. It was run by a guy named Gelek Rinpoche, who was a wonderful Tibetan Buddhist teacher, he became Allen Ginsberg's teacher after Chogim Trumper Rinpoche died, who was Ginsberg's first Tibetan Buddhist teacher. He had a wonderful center in Tribeca. He passed away a few years ago. And he had a center in Ann Arbor. And in 2010, I lived in Detroit for about nine months, and I would go see him on the weekends. But he was a wonderful, wonderful lama. And that was the first teachings we started going to, and it really made an impact, you know. What motivated you to seek this out in the first place? Mm. Misery, dissatisfaction, depression, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if clinical depression, but just kind of disillusionment. You know, I spent my 20s pretty much, you know, working. I used to produce a lot of theater when I was in my 20s and a lot of independent movies. I was involved in a New York indie scene and stuff. But also trying to get work, trying to get an agent, getting an agent, you know, trying to build a career. I was very, very, very driven to do that. Barely left the city unless it was for work or something. And, you know, really wanted to be successful, not just work. I wanted to have a certain degree of success in this business. And when that finally happened, you know, it was gratifying on a lot of levels, creatively and, and work-wise. But there was a whole other piece of my life that wasn't addressed. I thought it would take care of everything because it meant a lot to me. I mean, artistically, I don't just mean financially or success-wise. Artistically as well, it meant a lot was fulfilling in a lot of ways. I mean, I kind of mean around The Sopranos when that started happening. But at the same time, it was a bigger picture, I think, that I was missing. You know, and I went to excess with particularly alcohol and drugs and things like that, not unlike so many people, especially artists. Nothing outrageous or particularly romantic about it. And it was destructive. And I started seeking a lot of different spiritual paths, I started reading a lot of teachers like Krishnamurti, Gurdjieff, Uspensky, Suzuki, even kind of more out-of-the-box stuff like Castaneda I got really obsessed with for a while, and some occult stuff too, you know? Because I was interested in spirituality, but also kind of the more mystic aspects of it as well, mystic and esoteric aspects of spirituality. And some of them were more interesting to me than others, and some of them felt more true pathwise than others, like someone like Krishnamurti or even Gurdjieff to some degree. But then none of them offered me a practice. So I would read these books, and I'd get kind of inspired and agree with all these things, and the book would be done, and I'd be back to the dissatisfaction that brought me there. And then we, you know, stumbled into Jewelheart in Tribeca, 
And the thing that set it apart for me was, A, it was a living, authentic tradition and lineage that was still happening and still being offered and still being taught in a very authentic way. And it was open as much as you wanted to delve into it, you could. And there was absolutely a practice. I wound up taking refuge vows with a a different teacher. Refuge vows in Buddhism is a kind of officially becoming a Buddhist, basically. And this teacher said, okay, this is what you're going to have to do every day. And it was like 20 minutes, basically. And I was like, 20 minutes a day? Are you out of your mind? I said, there's no way I'm going to get up in the morning and do this practice for 20 minutes and then go about my day. I said, this is probably going to go by the wayside like everything else. And, you know, slowly we started and it unfolded in a lot of different ways. And eventually met our current teacher, Garchen Rinpoche, who really made all the difference in the world and our connection relationship to him. And, you know, we're fortunate to live in an era where there are some amazing, if this kind of tradition appeals to you, there are some amazing, authentic lamas teaching in a very meaningful, authentic lineage. And because of the wonders of technology, you can have access to these teachings and People have taken refuge vows through Zoom and online and stuff like that. You know, people in the past used to go on foot for three months to take a vow with a, with a great lama like that. You can do that by making that connection. It's just as authentic doing it online, you know, because it's about the connection and the intention and all that. So it's kind of amazing, I think. I agree. That was a long-winded answer to your first question. Well, you're in a safe place for long wind. <laughs> it's a podcast we're designed for, right, for a lot of well, wind. Then, then I'm in the right place. Okay. There's so much in what you said that I was kind of scribbling notes as you were talking. Just going back to the top of it, how, I mean, this is just such a common story, but human beings have to learn this over and over again. You had everything. You were on The Sopranos, arguably the best television show ever made. And it wasn't enough. Yeah, and it was really good. The work was really good. I loved every minute of it. I loved the people I worked with. I loved the work I did. I loved the character. I loved the acting I did on that. I got to write for the show and do some producing on the show. And then we had a theater that my wife and I built where we ran and produced new plays that had never been done. We were both co-artistic directors there. I started making music with the band Zopa, who I'm still with today. And it was a very fruitful time creatively. I had kids, it was great friends, great family, all that. And yet, yeah, there was still something I felt I had not tapped into and had not learned, had not learned, really. I think that's it more than anything. I never really said that before, but I think so. Learned. What do you mean by that? Mm. Why is that a revelation as the word issues forth from your mouth? Because kind of the most important thing in Buddhism is the view of Buddhism and all the methods that come from what the view is about, our methods to bring you to the truth, to what reality is and who we are and why we're here and all those things like that, right? So the view in Buddhism can be really broken down to like interdependence, impermanence, dependent arising, meaning we always have this illusion that everything is about our volition and things happening to us or things happening in a vacuum almost and that our our true reality is non-dual, right? The idea of, I have my vision of from this subjective point of view, and then there's this objective world that lives out there, and I see it as two distinct things, and the reality is it's not. So Buddhism offers methods to make that view take root and blossom in your consciousness, if you will. So you're not just a victim of this ego-driven mind that seeks only to benefit itself all the time or benefit the others in their immediate world that they deem worthy of benefit, that kind of thing. So learning that in a way, I mean, that's a probably a many lifetime process to learn all those things, but the goal is not to be a good Buddhist, right? Buddhism is, uh, well, like they say, the ship, right? That takes you across to that shore of truth, basically, and waking up from that delusion. And when you get there, You don't really need that ship anymore. It's a method. What I find very interesting about Buddhism, and I don't really see it like a religion because there's no God. Buddha wasn't a God. He's not worshipped as a God. And it's more about your own mind, dealing with your own mind, how your mind works. 
there's no kind of creation myths that you have to believe that there's this super omnipotent creator that did everything and does everything and is pulling all the strings. I find that really appealing because I had problems with more dogmatic kind of things. And Buddhism is not really interested in a lot of social structure. For instance, at least in our Tibetan Buddhist tradition, there's no Buddhist marriage ceremony. You know what I mean? Like my wife and I teach a meditation class that began to be more about basic Buddhism a little bit. And very often people ask, what's Buddhism's stance on this? Premarital sex. For instance, someone actually asked that. And it's like, Buddhism is not about stances so much. Like this is bad, this is good. It's much more about like, well, your basic sanity tells you if you're doing something that harms yourself or other people, you probably shouldn't be doing it. If it's abusive, right? If you're victimizing someone, if you're in power and you're using that power to manipulate someone or, or you know, you're cheating and you're going to ruin your relationship or you're going to do something dangerous or it's not like this is bad, this is good. It's like use your basic sanity to walk some kind of spiritual path. There has to be some kind of basic ethical discipline. You can't just be screwing everybody over left and right and expect to have some kind of equanimity and peace and compassion and all those things that we consider spiritual qualities like patience and generosity and kindness and all those things. And I like that about it. It's not so much about, you know, Buddha said this and you got to do that. You know, it's much more about working with your mind. Why meditation is important is you have to start to be really honest with yourself on how your mind works what your mind is doing, what your mind is trying to do, what's it going after. And all these little decisions that we make during the day that we justify is like, well, this, no, this is a good idea. No, this makes sense to me. You know, meditation can give you a little bit of objectivity to start to really go, oh, wait a second. I'm being very competitive here, you know. I'm being impatient here, you know, because I feel like my thing is more important than this person's thing. And do I want to act from that place? A lot of it's about creating space, I find. You talked about the view. Buddhism, you know, everything's changing all the time. If you try to cling, you're going to suffer. And who is this you anyway? And how, You're going to suffer anyway. But. Well, right. Well, <laughs> one, could, more, one could conceivably, at the further edge of the shore, not suffer much. Yeah, if, a Buddha. If, yes, yeah, if you are able to see that this you is really an illusion. And so I guess what my question for you is, how are you doing with that? How, <laughs> how far along are you on this ship? Well, you know, I don't really know. I mean, that's a good question. I don't really try to gauge that. You know what I mean? I think the thing is just to keep doing it, you know, and keep practicing. But I find a lot more meaning. I find my exchanges with people, not even relationships, like, f of course, friendships and family and colleagues, I find those relationships have a lot more meaning to me and are a lot more dear. But I find that just interacting with people in general, especially the last year and the last couple of years, I interact with a lot of people, especially being in New York City, because you're on the street and you're out and people come up and say hi and stuff. And I guess it's through practice and whatever, teachings and stuff. I find a lot more meaningful exchanges with people. And that's, I think, very lovely. I see the same thing in my own practice. I wonder sometimes, though, if we're roughly the same age, you're just like a tiny bit older than me. Would we have been able to do this in our 20s? Is the kind of equanimity and friendliness that sets in after a certain amount of practice, is that also tied to getting older and realizing how quickly things are passing? And I mean, do you think most people who get older find that? I don't, I look around and see a lot of people who stay exactly the same. Yeah, that's a fair point. A lot of people I know doing the same exact thing, same, very similar mindset. And the fact is we didn't do it in our 20s. You know, it's like they would say in Buddhism, it wasn't our karma to do it in their 20s. I wish I did. I kind of feel like I wasted a lot of time. But, you know, I heard an interview with a very famous filmmaker. I'm not going to say who it is because I don't like talking shit about people. But somebody I admire and he said... He was getting on in age. Around this interview, it was probably mid to late 70s. He says, I'm older now. I don't feel any wiser at all. And it's like, because basically you're doing the same thing, sometimes too clever for our own good. Somebody like him, very, very, very smart, probably figured, thought he figured it all out in his late 20s. And not a lot of, you know, maybe worldly things learn more about, but like 
these bigger questions, probably never pursued him. Probably was brought up in a traditional religion, I know he was, and then moved away from it like a lot of us do. Never found any kind of other probably contemplative practice, let alone spiritual practice. So why would you gain wisdom? Why, just from, you know, from repetition? I don't know. I think there has to be something else that opens up. And I'm not saying it comes from Buddhism or even meditation or something like that. Sometimes it can come from great upheaval, you know, great tragedy, great change, you know, when, whoa, the rug really gets pulled under and you really see that nature of impermanence and how, whoa, that is reality. You know, we have this illusion that we kind of got it all together, but we have no idea what's going to happen second by second. You know, That's really the truth. And I think if you have some space for that in your mind, life can become a lot more meaningful, you know, and maybe a little bit of your motivations can start to change a bit. I agree with basically everything you just said. On the age tip, though, I guess where I was going with that is that, you know, now that I'm in my 50s and I'm watching my parents get older, it feels like I'm having a little bit more of a direct understanding of impermanence and mortality. I'm just curious, like, would I have been able to grok that in any meaningful way, even with high-dose Buddhism in my 20s? But the question is, knowing about impermanence, right, and seeing evidence of it, because as you get older, more people around you die, right? That's just what happens. Or you look in the mirror. Or you look in the mirror and you know, but death is a very strong wake up about impermanence. But it's, what do you do with that? So realizing impermanence is a fact and that death is unpredictable and the moment of our death is coming and we don't know when it is. Well, what are you going to do with that? Sure, as you get older, you see the truth of that, but how do you integrate that? How does that change how you do things? That's what I'm saying a lot of people don't. Yeah, they they see it happening, but I don't know without either some kind of contemplative practice or spiritual path, or like I said, some great upheaval, some kind of thing that intervenes. I don't see how it really changes someone. I wish I did, but I don't. I just see it in people I know, people around me, people in my family. I think you make a powerful point about practice. I mean, you talked about this a little bit earlier that you were kind of doing all of this studying and traveling within quote-unquote spiritual circles, reading all these books, and you'd read Krishnamurti and then be inspired, and then it just fizzles because our whole wiring, we're programmed to forget this stuff. You know, we're right back into our usual grooves that society is pushing us down. Not all of them terrible necessarily, but, you know, individual achievement, purchasing stuff, getting the next hit of of dopamine. And the only way I've found to, like, really... start to shave down on any of this stuff is to have a set of consistent practices. And so I just, you know, I always think about how one of the original translations of the word sati, which we often translate as mindfulness, is actually recollection or remembering. It's just got to remember to do this stuff. Remember the view that you talk yeah. about. Yeah. In, in Tibetan, the word for meditation is gom, which means to habituate. To get familiar with, yeah. with your mind. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just because I practice these things doesn't, you know, I'm still subject to all these petty little human emotions that we all go through. I'm, I by no means conquered these things, but there's definitely a bit of a altered view of things from my point of view, you know, and how I look at what I'm doing in the world. And I'm happy for that. To be honest, now I can't imagine life without the Dharma. Because then it becomes like, well, what are you doing here? Is it the next job and, you know, more success, a bigger house, you know, your kids get old and then why am I here? You know, they, they talk about now as like in 50 years, people are going to live to 180. Well, what are they going to do <laughs> from 80 to 100? Those 100 years, they better have stuff to do, you know, and everyone thinks that's going to be so great. We're going to live that long. It's like, well, I hope we're really useful if we're going to live that long and not just be consuming stuff and like watching TV and scrolling through Instagram and stuff like that. I don't know, but I'm incredibly grateful and indebted to these teachers that have kept these traditions alive. How does it impact your craft of acting? I just finished watching you in The White Lotus. You were fantastic. The show was fantastic. By the way, how cool is it that you're on, in this course of your career, two of the most iconic and critically lauded shows Yeah, that's luck, I guess. I mean, White Lotus came out of nowhere, kind of, for me. 
that was really fun and very meaningful. You know, Mike is a very spiritual guy. I mean, he did the show Enlightened and he studied various Eastern trains of thought. And if you look at the White Lotus, there's people who have all this. They're wealthy. They have whatever they want. They have this comfort. They have success. And and yet they're miserable. <laughs> they're everybody. Trying. Everybody. Yeah. Miserable. And it's an interesting, interesting point. How has it affected my work? You know, I don't, I don't really know. Definitely the themes of the stuff that I do, the more personal work like songwriting or fiction writing or screenwriting, stuff that I'm working on, you know, acting like on The White Lotus, I'm using someone else's words, but stories that I'm creating, absolutely Buddhism has an effect there, you know, and turning towards themes that relate to it. As an actor, technically, I'm not really sure. I mean, I imagine meditation is helpful for concentration, but, you know, the true point of meditation is so much more important than just doing a good job on a TV show. <laughs> really? It's kind of <laughs> like, you know, driving a Ferrari down the corner to go pick up the milk at the corner store, you know. But still, I guess at its best, it should influence everything in one's life. You know, Chugim Trumpa Rinpoche was a very important Tibetan Buddhist lama who was really one of the first to bring Tibetan Buddhism to the West, started the first Buddhist university in the West called Naropa out in Boulder. And he was very interested in Dharma art. When Naropa opened in the 70s, he encouraged a lot of artists like Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman started the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics there because he felt, you know, his goal was to create an enlightened society. And he planted the flag of Dharma and planted all these seeds. And there's Shambhala centers that he started that are in different parts of the country and the world. And this university and his books that keep coming out, he's been dead for, you know, 30 something years. And every year a new book comes out because there's all these transcripts and recordings that he made. He died very young in his 40s. His vision was to an enlightened society where there's enlightened doctors and enlightened firemen and enlightened teachers, or at least those on the road to enlightenment. But he felt a lot of that movement and shift needed to come from the artists first. So a lot of Naropa's programs were art and psychology a lot too. A lot of his students were hippies, you know, like in the 60s and early 70s. And I've met a bunch of them. A lot of them wound up becoming artists and therapists. So I think the intersection of Buddhism, and not just Buddhism, but any kind of contemplative practices and art are very vital ones. And I think I've noticed... For some reason, Buddhism is less intimidating to a lot of young people. You know, people are not intimidated by the concept of Buddhism. I think they feel like there's kind of a user-friendly thing to it. And I think a lot of younger people are very suspicious of organized religion and theism, God. And I think that when they start to realize that Buddhism is not a theistic religion, it piques a lot of interest, you know, because younger people is where our future is, for real, you know? And I mean, we're at a very strange place in history, right? Where technology is so advanced and our minds are so busy and occupied all the time. So different than a hundred years ago. I mean, just like, I guess we have to have some hope. And I have a lot of hope for the younger generations. I really think they're a lot more open-minded than my generation certainly was. A lot more tolerant of differences in people. That gives me a lot of hope. Just back to the acting thing, your point is well taken about how art is so important in terms of changing the world, really. Just on a very tactical level, though, I can imagine how having a meditation practice could put you right there in the moment in a way that would be helpful for acting, maybe boost your spontaneity, et cetera, et cetera. I guess so. But to be honest, you know, when I started training at 17, I went to the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute which came out of the Actors Studio, which is right a block away from here, actually. Actors Studio was really the beginning of the great American film acting tradition started out of that, because that's where Brando and James Dean and all those great actors came from. And the first thing you do is you do relaxation exercise. I mean, you sit in a chair and you let all the tension in your body go and you breathe. 
And you try to be aware of wherever there's tension in your body and really start to relax and breathe and then maybe make a sound like, ah. Uh, that's the first thing that you do before you do anything else. I mean, that's pretty damn similar to meditation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the ah is like a mantra or an ohm or whatever. I mean, it's extremely similar. And what that does is, you know, because you're letting your tension go. And then the next thing you do is add like a thing to concentrate your attention on. So you'll create sensorily, say, a coffee cup. That's the first exercise they do at Strasbourg. And you pretend, they don't like to say pretend, you kind of recreate the sensorial experience of holding a coffee cup and really try to feel the heat, smell it. So now you're focusing all your senses and all your awareness on this object. So your concentration isn't all like, oh my God, you know, the class is looking at me and the teachers were, no, your concentration is just here on these things. And you really try to hone in on this object through the use of your imagination, your senses, your concentration, and your will. Very, very similar, you know. So I can't say meditation is so different than that. Maybe it's another aspect of that, but I don't, isolate meditation from the teachings of Buddhism. And a lot of people do and get great benefit from that. I'm not diminishing that. I'm saying for me, I don't really separate it as a thing unto itself. Like in the class that Victoria and I teach, we say, we're not trying to be good meditators. We're trying to be good people. The goal is not to, it's not like, you know, I'm going to be really good at the treadmill. You know, the goal is, to be healthy, that's why you're on the treadmill, right? The goal is not to be, I'm a great meditator. No, the goal is to be better person, you know, or a happier person, you know, happier in a way that's not just about the self-serving, selfish happiness that includes others and ultimately all beings, like in the, in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. Coming up, Michael Imperioli talks about what his daily meditation practice looks like, what he means when he talks about praying, why he started teaching meditation online, and the significance of his Buddhist name and why after dismissing it for years, it's actually now become central to his practice. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Having just heard you say that you don't separate the practice from the Buddhist tradition, I'm curious, though, like what your practice is like and do you do retreats and on retreats, what kind of meditation are you doing there? Well, in the Vajrayana tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, which is a bit more of an esoteric tradition that has a lot of different methods that incorporate liturgical, you know, uh, sadhanas, which are like liturgies, you know, and practices, visualization practices, those all have to be given through a teacher. And there's a kind of a formal ceremony called an empowerment, where basically the teacher is offering you the connection to the lineage, these teachings that have been handed down. It's a formal ceremony to make a connection to this lineage. So the teachings, not just you learning this method, but it's you learning this method in the context of this lineage and being a part of this. It's tantric Buddhism. Tantra means connection. So it's your link to the prior teacher going all the way back to the Buddha, basically. So there's times where I'll do a practice that my teacher has given me in that tradition. There's times when I'll just do basic mindfulness meditation. But the important thing Usually, Buddhist practice has three parts. The first is setting your intention, making aspirations. So you're setting your intention that when you do this practice, it's not just for you. And we, we say something called the four measurables, you know, which is may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings not be separated from the happiness that has never known suffering. May they rest in equanimity, free from attachment, anger, and aversion. That's the first thing you say. And you're not just saying it by rote, but really trying to create some kind of altruistic motivation through your practice. That it's not just for you to feel good. It's not for you just to feel distracted from the day or whatever. There's a bigger picture. Yeah, it is for you as well, because you're among these beings. But that there is a bigger picture. And maybe it's that practice, or maybe it's just sitting, you know, mindful meditation. Sometimes I also do certain prayers for people who have passed. It might be that kind of thing. So that's the meat of the practice, per se, that second component of the practice. And then the third is dedication. So when you do some kind of practice, because if you have these positive intentions, you gain a certain degree of merit. Basically, you're kind of creating positive karma or something. And then what you do is you dedicate that merit to the benefit of all beings. And we say this prayer, by this merit, may all beings obtain the omniscient state of enlightenment and conquer the enemies of faults and delusions. May they be liberated from this ocean of samsara and its pounding waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. That's the closing dedication prayer. As Those beginning and endings are very, very important because it's almost like if you don't dedicate the merit, the merit gets used up very easily. It's almost like you get a little credit and you'll burn that. But if you take that credit and you put it in, in the, it's like this great cosmic hedge fund or something <laughs> like that. We're all, you know, you're putting, you know, you're taking a drop of water and putting it in the ocean. So now that drop of water becomes the ocean. That's kind of the theory. But there's always an aspect, pretty much always an aspect of just quiet mind meditation where you're just like really in stillness and, if a thought comes in, letting it go and let it dissolve. And there's there's always an aspect of that, even if you're doing some kind of Vajrayana practice or something like that. You use the word prayer a couple times in there. When a Vajrayana Buddhist uses the term prayer, in my understanding, it's quite different from the way, you know, a Catholic or a Jew might talk about prayer, where you're asking a higher power right. to intervene or intercede in some way. Yeah, that's a tricky thing in Buddhism because... Well, if non-duality is one of the views of Buddhism, well, who are you asking? So it's not so much supplication, per se, and asking for intervention, but it's it's more acknowledging, I left this out, this is very important, in Buddhism, all sentient beings, not just people, have Buddha nature, which means the enlightened nature is already in us. It's not something we get from outside. What we do is uncover it. And how we do that is clear away the obscurations of 
the self, you know, the mental constructs, the habitual patterns, the negative ideas about things and all that. So we're kind of honoring that, that Buddha nature. When you take refuge, you take refuge in the Buddha, but ultimately you're kind of, by saying you take refuge in the Buddha, in some ways you're also saying, I'm taking refuge in my own true nature, which is Buddha. We started the meditation class during the pandemic online, you know, on, promoted it through Instagram and it's free. You just sign up for the Zoom invite through my bio and Instagram. But it started out just a secular meditation. I asked my teacher, I said, a lot of people are writing me, well, I want to learn how to meditate. Should I teach them? He said, yeah. If you have the intention to benefit people, then go ahead and teach meditation. So we started teaching completely secular, mindful, shamatha meditation. And we'd have a Q&A and people were really interested in things like reincarnation and karma, you know, was always a lot of the first things people have questions about or interested in. And then other things about Buddhism. And I went back to my teacher. I said, They're asking a lot of questions about the Dharma. What should we do? He said, you can talk about it, but keep the focus on the mind. Because Buddha is not the name of a man. It's the name of mind. So this Buddha nature that I'm talking about that we all innately have is exactly the true nature of our own mind. Because everything we do, everything we experience, we do it through the mind, right? Every impulse we have it first stems from the mind. Every stimuli that comes in, we take it in through the mind, we translate it through the mind, we react, the mind is like the operating system or whatever of us. And that true nature, when it's in its essence, when it's without the, like we said, these habitual tendencies and this conditioning and this impulses and the selfish input, when, when it really is resting, that's, Buddha nature, you know, and that is enlightenment, and that is Buddha. The way I think about it when I'm wishing for all beings to be free from suffering, it's not, I mean, I personally don't use the word prayer, but that may be just because I don't know enough yet, but I more think of it as a training for myself to get better at having an altruistic intention. I think that's exactly right. I think it's the same thing. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Because we need a lot of training. <laughs> At least the people at this table. Ninety-nine point nine 99.9% of us need a lot of training. Absolutely. Exactly what you said. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's an incredible concept that we are trainable in this way, that we're not stuck with factory settings that are unalterable. You know, you can work on this four-pound or whatever-pound globule of cells in between your ears. That's incredible news. We're not stuck and we're not frozen and we're not doomed to a certain mindset. No, no, no. No, not at all. You know, and transformation is possible. Yeah, absolutely. That's the beauty of learning these things. Going back to you and your path here, as I understand it, when you were going through one of your earliest ceremonies of becoming a Buddhist, you got a Buddhist name. You'll remember it, I won't, but I remember the translation of the name is patience. Yeah. And that word and that concept, that capacity has become increasingly important for you. Why? Yeah, when you take refuge, you get a Buddhist name. And my Buddhist name is Konchuk Zopa Sonam. So Konchuk is the family name that my teacher's lineage and the, his students get. And Sonam means auspicious. And Zopa means patience. It's also the name of my band. But when I took refuge with Garchin Rinpoche, he said, your name is Zopa because when you lose your patience, you lose your love. Now, when I heard that, whatever, 15 years, 14 years ago, you know, it sounded very pithy, you know, very like Hallmark card, fortune cookie. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, when you lose your patience, you lose your love, right? And I never really gave it a lot of thought. Although patience is one of the, Paramitas, you know, one of the spiritual qualities that we, you know, try to cultivate or that, that arise when you clear out the junk or whatever. But at some point I started thinking about it. I said, he gave me this name deliberately. And he said this to me on the day I became a Buddhist and became his student. Maybe you should think about this a little. And maybe patience is really the key to my practice. Maybe I just kind of glossed over it like something very kind of 
pretty, you know, and pithy and not essential. Chuggim Trumper Rinpoche also referred to patience. Often we think of patience as like forbearance. And he called it, especially if you're a Buddhist, an obligation. If you're a practitioner, patience is not being generous per se or forbearing some kind of hardship or something. It's an obligation. When I heard that, something really shifted. For instance, so if you're online at the coffee shop and the person in front of you is taking a ridiculously long time to figure out what they want, to order what they want, to pay for what they want, and you're in a rush. And every impulse you have said, this person's an asshole. It's a coffee shop. They should know what they want. They should have their money ready. They, you know, every impulse, because you, you have somewhere to go. The obligation, if you're a practitioner, is that your thing is not about you. So you're about kind of opening to this situation, opening to this situation, saying, this person's going to take whatever time it takes for them to do it, right? And how does that shift my experience of this moment? Because if you can go there, something else starts to happen rather than you just looking at your watch. When's this person going to go? You know, making all these judgments about, because the judgment about the person is kind of irrelevant. It's about you and what are you doing with this situation and what happens? What energy is getting expended? What positive and negative thoughts are arising? So this, everything starts to become an opportunity for practice. One thing we tell the people in our class time and time and time again, being a Buddhist is not about being a doormat. This practice of patience doesn't mean you let people abuse yourself or others. You may often be in a position where it's inherent and important for you to intervene in a situation where someone's being abusive or abusing others. You know, you can't be on the subway and watch somebody abuse another person like, well, I'm a Buddhist and I'm, I'm in my mindfulness, whatever the hell. You may have to get in there and help, but patience, yeah. So think of it as an obligation you know, and listen, I get impatient all the time, I'm on, lots of times, but if you start to take these things seriously and try to find ways of working with them in life, things happen, you know? Life becomes a little bit more spacious. And the connection to love is interesting because I, like you, I think if I had heard that not too long ago, I would have thought, okay, well, it's kind of an empty bromide. I used to have a nanny when I was a little kid, Juanita. And when I, my brother and I were being a pain in the ass, she would grip the steering wheel of her yellow VW bug and say, patience is a virtue. And yeah, just <laughs> like that. Yes, just like that, probably louder. And so I, and I just never really thought about the word beyond something that Juanita might say. But I had an experience a couple of years ago. It was a very tough moment for me where I had just gotten a bunch of very negative feedback about how, like, just kind of being a jerk. I had done what's called a 360 review where the people in my life gave me feedback on how I was doing. And was did you not, ask for it? I did. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well, I really <laughs> asked for it in every yeah. sense of that phrase. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was on my way after reading it to talk to my executive coach, who's a active Buddhist and was on the board of Naropa University. So he's a very interesting guy. His name is Jerry Colonna. And on my way to see Jerry, I was late. And I was taking the subway. It was July. It was sweltering hot. And this is a tiny little moment. But I was running up the stairs to get to Jerry to talk to him about becoming a more compassionate person. And I jostled a woman, not in any significant way, but I kind of hit her purse a little bit. Normally, I would have turned around and said, I'm so sorry. But I was, I didn't have time for that. I just kept going. And Jerry, to his credit, really just honed in on that moment. He saw it? He didn't, but I told him about it. And he just came back to that over and over as a metaphor for, like, when you're in your own shit, when you're rushing, when you're hurried, you just don't have the bandwidth to give a shit about other people. And that's what I hear when your teacher said, when you lose your patience, you lose your love. And you can justify being in a rush, being impatient, all you want, and be probably really correct. But do you want to be right or do you want to be free? Coming up, Michael talks about bringing mindfulness into your daily life, the two most common things he hears from people who are just starting to meditate, and why he encourages meditation-curious people to find a teacher from an authentic lineage. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job. 
Which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. So there's a book called 37 Practices of a Bodhisattva. I want to ask you about a couple of the 37 practices, but can you just describe for people what a bodhisattva is? A bodhisattva is someone who's primary focus, and this is my definition, I I wish I had the more accurate one, but primary focus in their life, primary motivation, intention is to be of benefit to all beings. And in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism, when you take a bodhisattva vow, you are committing to returning in your subsequent lifetimes to come back rather than just reach enlightenment and be in some kind of nirvana state for eternity. You're going to come back in whatever form, human, you know, animal, whatever, whatever form you're coming back in to be of benefit to others, to help them towards enlightenment. And you will not stop that until all sentient beings become enlightened. That's a true bodhisattva. So if we think of Buddha nature as this capacity that is obscured for most of us, at least partially, for unbridled compassion. A bodhisattva has removed all those obscurations and is purely altruistic. Yes, or they're on the way to that. I don't think all bodhisattvas are necessarily completely enlightened and have kind of like really eliminated every aspect of kind of volition and things like that, but they make a serious commitment to that path. And, you know, they make a a very authentic commitment towards that's what they're going to dedicate their life to. So if we're interested in moving some or part of the way or all the way toward being a bodhisattva, these practices are of interest. And number 36 is wherever you are, whatever you do, always examine the state of your mind. Because that's where everything happens, you know? It's like you can't trust that your impulses are always going to be correct or beneficial to others. So you have to use your mind, your mindfulness to look at those. We can justify an awful lot of things that are selfish, that are, you know, self-serving, that are not with the benefit of others in mind. So you have to look at your mind and seeing what it's doing. I mean, that's what meditation offers. I I sometimes say in the class, it's like, you know, in radio or television, they have a seven-second delay, right? So There's seven seconds they have before it goes out on the airwaves if you're doing live TV or live radio. So if you'd say some horrible profanity, it doesn't have to go all the way out into the world. Meditation does that a little bit. It gives you this little delay that normally we wouldn't necessarily have, you know? You can say, okay, how do I want to respond? You know, because the emotion arises. Somebody does something, makes you angry, and the emotion arises, and then... 
Are you going to act out of that anger and then compound the anger and compound that situation that's happening? Or are you going to find a way to diffuse it, not engage with it, you know, find another angle of interaction? There's a Burmese teacher I've never met, but I incorporate some of his teachings into my own meditation practice. And one of his little, one of the little mantras he recommends to students is to ask yourself regularly, what's the attitude in the mind right now? And it's like shining a black light on a hotel sheet. You know, it's like you see all these terrible fluids when you ask yourself that question. And it's just useful. You can see, am I acting right now out of desire to commit a homicide? Am I acting right now out of, you know, a desire to hoover up somebody's, you know, Oreos? What, Whatever. And it can wake you up. It's the seven second delay. Yeah. And if you are doing that, no matter where you're at, that's amazing. Because they, they use this analogy. It's like, if you turn a light on in a room that's been closed up and dark for 3,000 years, once you put that light on, there's light in that room. So you could have a mind that's been like, the size of a postage stamp for lifetime after lifetime. And somehow you get the benefit of someone giving you some teachings and you have this moment where you actually look at the mind and have a little spaciousness. You have spaciousness at that moment or a piece of spaciousness. It's like we talk about this in the class again. Meditation is not just for the cushion. Again, you're not just meditating to be a good meditator sitting on the cushion. You're trying to bring whatever this awareness mindfulness that you're cultivating while on the cushion, while doing these practices, you're trying to bring that into life. Sitting on the cushions, you know, it's not easy, right? I mean, meditation is difficult, especially when you're just starting. But even if you've been doing it a long time, it's difficult. But having that kind of spaciousness and working with the thoughts and the mind and stuff on the cushion, it's one story. Doing it on the subway in rush hour is a whole other thing. But that's really why you're doing this. Yes, yes. You're not doing it just to be good on the cushion. I've met people who are, they're on that cushion like, I've been in retreat situations and you see people sitting on the cushion in perfect kind of posture and stillness and for hours. And then, you know, they'll complain to the chef about the food in the cafeteria or something like that. It's like, well, where where did that mindfulness go? And I've, I'm sure done the same thing myself, you know, but I'm saying it's like, that's, you know, it's not just on the cushion. Yes, we don't meditate to become better meditators, although that's good. We meditate to it's get great. better at life. Yeah. And that's the point. But I try not to, in teaching it, I try to steer people away from this pass, fail, good, bad. Yes. Uh, you know, what's really interesting, everybody says the same thing about meditation. Everybody always says, I've tried to meditate and I have a particularly busy mind and I can't meditate. It's like, so thinking that the people who meditate are these people who are already very kind of serene meditators and that's why they're able to do it. Everybody's mind is busy. Everybody. Especially if you haven't done this practice. The mind thinks that that's what it does. And I hear that time and time again from people who at least they tried or they they didn't try. They don't think they can. Especially like creative people who think, you know, that's my thing. I'm creative. I'm always thinking, you know, it's like you're no more special than anybody else. We're all a bunch of, you know, thinking too much monkey mind people. We're all the same. And the other misconception is that people think meditation is about not thinking, which is a horrible negative thing. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I, I can't just not think. This thoughts come in. It's like, that's what the mind does. It thinks. It's not going to stop thinking. We're working with the mind. We're working with the thoughts. That's what we're doing. Those are two giant misconceptions that I get all the time from potential meditators or, you know, people who are starting to meditate. Amen to both of those points. Just leads me to a question. We talked earlier about causes and conditions and, you know, how everything that's happening right now, we're always on on the crest of a wave of unfathomable ocean of causes and conditions way back to whenever. But as it's manifesting in you, it's very interesting that you have this public platform that you have because the universe puts you on all these incredible TV shows and movies, and also to have a clear understanding. It's obvious. This is what I do for a living. I talk to meditation teachers, and you clearly have a real cellular understanding of this stuff. That is awesome, just to have these two things simultaneously. And it leads me to my question, which is, do you consider yourself a teacher? 
I teach meditation. I don't consider myself a teacher of Buddhism, although we do try to answer people's questions, but we do it more as fellow students, just talking about what I've been taught. But meditation is, I think, a very, 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 very simple thing to teach and very kind of mechanical almost. I really, really encourage people who do the meditation class with us that if they have any interest in this, to find a teacher from an authentic lineage. I think there's a lot of pop culture, watered down versions of things that are living traditions that are connected to the source. You know, if you're interested in this, rather than do some watered down, new agey kind of distillation, go to the source. It's still here. It may not be a hundred years from now, but it is now. There are teachers from these authentic lineages living amongst us, and some of them have really made great attainments in, you know, working with the mind. I mean, to your thing about having a kind of an understanding of stuff, my aspiration is that my actions of body, speech, and mind somehow kind of reach at least my theoretical understanding of what it should do, because there's still a large gap between those things. But pouring himself some water. But, uh, sorry. There's a, there's a large gap, but like, look, I think it's reassuring for me to hear and for anybody to hear that you retain the capacity to be a schmuck. I mean, that's, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that part of it is that you don't want to overpromise. This is marginal improvement over time. The path isn't like a hockey stick where it's unbroken progress up and to the right forever. It's up and down and up and down. And hopefully the overall trajectory is up and to the right. Well, you know, I think it, being exposed to these teachings, it's like, what else am I going to do? I tried it the other way, and it's not its not going to work. You know what I mean? I tried, you know, getting all my satisfaction out of material, and some not material things, some things that had a lot of heart, like art and family and things like that. But there's still other things that I need to learn. And Again, to your question about being a teacher, teaching meditation is like I teach acting some, once in a while too. Those things I can teach, they're very simple. And well, acting's actually harder to teach than meditation, to be honest. But Buddhism, again, encouraging people to find really authentic teachers is really important because that's how you really make the progress. You know, my thing was if people are asking for that and you have an opportunity to share that, I feel a responsibility to. It's not like I want to be a meditation. I, if you told me, because the class has been going on two and a half years, if you told me two and a half years ago, you're going to be teaching meditation and discussing Buddhism with people, you know, kind of all around the world, because we have people tuning in from lots of different countries and lots of different spiritual traditions and stuff, Jews and Muslims and Christians and all people who are interested in meditation and maybe a little bit about Buddhism, whatever. But it was really because people were asking me. And I mean, if you can share these things, I feel an obligation to do that. It's not that I feel like I know these things and I should be teaching. I just kind of was in that position, you know, because I was on a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> many, Basically, many TV shows. Yeah. Before I let you go, is there something I should have asked that I didn't, anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't tee you up to talk about? Well, you talked about all the good stuff. I mean, I don't get to talk at length about these things because, you know, m most of the time people are not, you know, familiar with it like you are with all these practices and teachings and things like that. So it's really fun for me to talk about it. I will say that teaching meditation and discussing Buddhism with people who new to it, some not new to it and stuff like that, has really helped my practice because it forces you to really break down how you're doing it by articulating it and breaking it down, it reinforces your own like stability a little bit in yeah. the practice. And, and you know, if you're going to be explaining some of these things to people, you better at least attempt to practice what you preach, if you will. Although I don't like to think of it as preaching, but at least make an attempt. Not, I'm not saying pretend that you succeed and pretend that you've you've figured it out, because Lord knows I have it. But you know. I'm, I have a lot of respect for these people who come online and do these things. Some of them have been with us for two and a half years now, and they really take it seriously, and they really ask very important questions and are vulnerable and really make an effort and putting their trust in you and something that's very important and precious, and that's very humbling, really is. I have a lot of affection for these people. Not easy to do in this world, you know, mm -hmm. and to be moved to that point to want to do that. It's pretty, pretty amazing.
Just in closing here, are there other things you're working on that would be worth reminding people about? We've talked about The Sopranos and White Lotus and Zopa, your band, and uh, all the meditation teaching you're doing online. Anything else that we should just mention before I set you free? Well, not necessarily. I think you covered it. Well, I'm grateful to you for doing this. I'm grateful that you brought me on. It was fun. It's really fun to talk about these things. Built my whole life around doing just that. You're lucky. <laughs> I am lucky. Yeah. Yeah. I am lucky. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks it. For Super fun. Me. Thanks again to Michael Imperioli. Thanks to you for listening. Rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. That really helps. Thanks most of all to everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of the great band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for an episode with Dura Williams, the first in our series on the Eightfold Path. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.